Welcome to the SSI Orbit Podcast, a forum where we explore the ever-growing ecosystems of self-sovereign identity. And I'm your host, Matsur Glod. In today's conversation, I welcome Kalia Young, often referred to as Identity Woman, for a sneak peek on what to expect from IIW32, the 32nd iteration of the Internet Identity Workshop, which will be hosted virtually. So for over 15 years, IIW has been the premier place to bring together the largest concentration of talents dedicated to designing and building identity systems that empower individuals. So this episode is meant to give a high-level overview of the topics that are being discussed in the digital and decentralized identity communities in preparation for this event. Now, listeners of this podcast who haven't registered yet for IIW or maybe are on the fence about registering can get a 20% discount by using the discount code in the show notes. So we look forward to seeing you all there. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Kalia Young. Okay, we're live. Kalia, how is it going? Great. Great. What's keeping you busy these days? Well, I am the ecosystems director at the COVID-19 Credentials Initiative. So that's my um, current main focus of work. And in that role, I've been tapped to co-chair the interoperability working group for Good Health Pass that is happening in the Trust of IP Foundation. Awesome. Um, been following both of those projects, the CCI for, gosh, I think it's been over a year now already. It's a or year, yeah. Yep. And then the, the Good Health Pass, uh, definitely seeing a lot of momentum and excitement behind that project. So I, I would like to go a little deeper into both of those uh, as we, we go through the conversation here today. Um, I, I read, this is a quote from, I, I pulled online. So you go as Identity Woman and mm-hmm. Identity Woman is a NIM warrior. And, yeah. and uh, <laughs> what is a NIM warrior? So this term emerged around, um, when Google created Google Plus, building on top of its email system, basically, um, it um, created profiles for people who had email addresses. And then early on, you could get like invited into the Google Plus social network. And those early invitations went out and they spread around. And then at some point they were going to like flip over to be like totally public. So anybody could join once they kind of had a critical mass. And it was at that point that Google decided to implement effectively a real names policy. And it started canceling or suspending people's accounts who didn't have what we started to term WASPONIMs white Anglo-Saxon Protestant name. So if you were John Smith, you were fine, even if that wasn't your real name, because it looks like a real name to the algorithms. But me, you know, Kalia Identity Woman, which is, you know, my first name in real life, plus my online handle, was suspended because it didn't look like a real name. And this is, you know, they're building a social network of people who are online, many of whom who've used handles in the online space for a decade or more. And you're like, well, that's not real, except it is real because they use it online and have done for 10 years. So stop canceling people because they don't match your naming algorithm, which only lets certain types of names through. So 
there was, you know, it became lit, like there's a hashtag. I'm sure if you searched on it today, we're all like um, the Nim Wars. And so like people started finding each other on Twitter and being like, what's going on? And like, there was a really big fight at the time with Google around this. And um, folks like um, Tim O'Reilly got into the the fray and started to saying there's a lynch mob against google i'm like time out tim that's not an appropriate term for people who are marginalized who have different identities telling a big corporation that they're wrong when lynching was what happened to black people in the south by white mobs like these are not equivalent and you can't make this and in fact i even pointed at um you know the example from roots where um kunta kinte was like my name is kunta kinte and like the slave owner is like no your name's toby right and it's sort of you know it's not the same at all in a kind of you know slavery and that impact is much greater than these smaller fights we're having about naming but it's the entity with more power saying to the other people no your name can't be identity woman or rainbow star flower or whatever that sort of funny internet handle you had you, that's not real right and it was talking more about this power imbalance around who has the right to name themselves and who gets to say what a legitimate name is yeah the, and there's something extremely powerful about pseudonymity too that like uh it's one of the things i love on twitter today too is you have these people with such powerful voices that I don't know what their legal name is and I actually don't care either. Right. And right. it's, it's like the, your, your legal name is kind of, um, I don't know if it's an antiquated attribute for identifying you, but I mean, on, on certain, certain things and like Google plus is probably one of them. Like, why can't you be called what you want to be called? <laughs> what's, what's, what's the difference? Right. And, and they kind of came back and said, well, behavior, blah, blah. And all the community managers are like manage behavior in communities that isn't managed by what you choose to call yourself um and it's really you know names are tools that people use to communicate about each other and what happens to be on our administrative paperwork and where it's appropriate to force people to share the name that's on their administrative paperwork is something we need to be talking about because it's not always relevant and in fact can be harmful and making make vulnerable people more vulnerable if they um are required to share that yeah for, for sure and so so i think for from the other perspective uh, you're talking about like being canceled because you're not providing a name but people get canceled because they provide their names yeah uh from the other side around right and mm -hmm. so um it's uh, <laughs> an interesting kind of social landscape that's uh, uh been developing on the internet and so um You've been in the digital ID space. I, I know you started IW in 2005. Um, how, this is kind of a broad question, but like from when you got into the space to where we are now, how have you seen the different trends move or what's really changed? Well, both a lot. And then I think, you know, my core inspiration and the place I got started on the path of looking at digital identity was a community called Planet Work, which is planet and network mushed together. And they, as a community, did some discernment after their um, 2000 
the year 2000 conference that they hosted and asked what was a missing piece of infrastructure needed to make the internet better for people and for people to self-organize, to connect to each other, to make the planet and the ecosystem and the, you know, the, the, the earth that we live on better. And it was a very interesting answer that they came up with. They, they identified a gap and said, there are no open standards for digital identity, for the representation of people in the digital realm, and that we needed open standards for this. And then if we didn't take the time to invest in creating those open standards, that if you sort of took the current trajectory without those open standards forward, you would end up with governments and large corporations owning everybody's identity. And they were right, right? So they took the paper that they wrote, the Augmented Social Network white paper, Building Identity and Trust into the Next Generation, shopped it around to a bunch of foundations and who didn't understand what they were talking about, didn't understand the, the missing infrastructure piece they were naming, and didn't understand the implications of not funding its development at the time. And here we are, Facebook, kind of owns everybody's digital representation of themselves with like bonus Google owns a bunch of them too. And now we have sort of open ID connect and it's sort of NASCAR with like login with these different options, but none of them are you. So, I, I mean, I think the, the good thing is, is this, you know, and to be fair, open ID and OAuth all came out of were developed within the context of IAW and they were better than everybody going to a new website and getting an entirely different identity every time. I think that there was a corporate capture that happened with those standards. And I think people are very concerned about this with this next generation of, of open standards and are really pushing even harder for them to be open and person-driven. And hopefully we can have truly open standards that have less corporate catcher than the first generations. But I'm really optimistic about, you know, getting usable PKI into the hands of normal people on apps they control on their devices. That's super exciting. And I think has the potential to fulfill those original visions that I got inspired by in the first place. So this keeps me, you know, motivated to help these new technologies to succeed because I think they realize key aspects of that original vision that have yet to be realized. I, I definitely think the, the rise of mobile and stuff like that has given tools in people's pockets to, to be able to manage their own uh, identity attributes or all sorts of, of credentials. I, I, I do find it interesting, I guess, like when you had started IAW in 2005, um, I'm trying to think back to when I opened my, my Facebook account. I think it was maybe a couple of years before that or around that time too. So I guess Facebook hadn't like the Facebook internet. Facebook wasn't was founded until 2004. I mean, and sometimes okay. I describe myself as like being against Facebook before it ever existed in the sense that we were naming this issue and being like. And, and it is funny today. Like a lot of people have been talking about the, uh, the security breach that they had, uh, who knows when it happened, but they talked about it like a week ago or so of all these accounts that, that have been breached. Um, out of out of 196 million users, they dropped down to 194 million users with an increase in traffic in the time too. So it's uh, <laughs> it's crazy to see kind of the, the risks that go with the models that they have in place today, but it's just, um, um, 
I think we're seeing some really good movements in the communities we're in, but the people that are using these weak web two or however we want to call it kind of systems, um, it's just, they don't seem to be impacted by this stuff. Sure. And I, until we have better tools, they won't be because they're pragmatic, right? I think we need to take the, this this sort of seedling infrastructure we have and grow it up so it actually provides better value to a whole range of actors who today find value in a Facebook ecosystem. And, and part of that is around entrepreneurs building alternative social networks who are committed to interoperability and to um, really putting users in control in a way that, that Facebook has not. Um, a great example is um, the work that um, Jim Fournier is doing with a network called True.net. And that um, uses um, both under, uses decentralized identifier in the infrastructure and also a, a standard that they've, um, they're putting forward for adoption by others called JLink that allows you to see the provenance of information in, that you're viewing in your social network. And they're committed to working with other social emerging sort of alternative social network operators to have interoperability between their platform and other people's platforms. That's awesome. Um, and it looks like there's, there's two different types of ways to approach the centralized identity. Like you could build new platforms and compete with the existing platforms that are out there, but there's also the existing platforms out there could start, um, re-architecting themselves a little bit to be able to, to meet the, the privacy and consent-driven uh, properties that people are looking for and, and should have access to. Um, the digital ID space has is absolutely booming. Like if you talk about just like the these ID proofing companies uh, on one side, uh, just all, all these verticals, right? I got my ID proofing companies, I got my e-signature companies, I could even get into the cyberspace and I'm talking a lot about identity and access management companies uh, that, that have been involved in, in IAW for, for all these years. Um, do you, how do you see them kind of going towards that space? It's one thing to be to build kind of a new new platform from scratch, but what's your view on how these existing, for lack of a better word, centralized uh, providers are, are approaching this? Yeah, I mean, look, those entities are solving business problems businesses have, right? And the question is, can we solve those business problems with open standards that make it easier for someone to take a verifiable credential from one party and share it with another and have them believe it, right? I think in the end, these if we're successful with a bunch of these new emerging open standards, they're very disruptive to the existing business models of identity proofers, et cetera, because they're making money over the fact that the, the sort of current paper-based model of document provision means that the only way to figure out whether something is true is to go and ping large data sets that they have access to and are corralling and then making you know assertions based on those data sets that other businesses are relying on. I think, you know, this is another underreported property of the kind of verifiable credentials technology that is is being developed um, at IAW is that 
if we are successful, we end the, if I know information about you, I can be you problem, because the only way you can be you is if you actually have the verifiable credential from an authoritative source, which I'm sure we will have attacks that try and get those, but that's different than the current attack model, which is I'm gonna find information about you. And because I know that information, I'm gonna commit fraud or try and steal things from you because I'm convincing someone I am you because I know information about you. And that whole set of um, attack surfaces goes away when you have verifiable credentials type infrastructure where only the person who was issued a credential can assert those things about themselves because they can't, they can know information about you, but they can't replay you presenting the credential because only you have it. I, I was on the phone with someone earlier today that um, um, was calling me just to ask, like he, his email was taken over basically. And his email is connected to uh, a whole lot of his different accounts, right? His, uh, his banking account, his, uh, his crypto account, uh, all sorts of things. And the person was able to get in and, um, change his recovery email and he's been kind of stuck in this whole thing. So you have all of these types of issues like you just described that are able to happen in, um, I guess it's- I mean, that problem, so like to be fair, you, you know, people should be using two-factor authentication, FIDO tokens, et cetera, right? So there's, you know, you know, I do think though, if we move towards verifiable credentials and sort of that kind of tooling for authentication, it's also way more secure. That's why I knew we were onto something. It's once the bank started showing up and go, that's really cool. That usable PKI you're embedding in the app is way better than little owls looking back at you and like SMTP messages. Let's do that. And I was like, yay. The banks are into this because of security properties, not because it's good for people. And maybe we'll get both, right? We'll get good for people and more secure for the banks, which is sort of the win-win we want to actually get broad market adoption. Hmm. Yeah, and, and I guess like these um, these processes of authentication, like, like 2FA, uh, this type of thing, these are still very good processes. It's just you could do them using verifiable credentials. Mm -hmm. rather than rather than using a one-time pin or uh, just and, and these other methods that having uh, having worked for a bank before uh, that that's what we did right so you get an email with a code and I or a text message with a code and to, to be honest uh, I probably get these every day now with different services I use so something like verifiable credentials for a multi, like a two-factor authentication could be something something interesting um, which I'm not sure if that's what Microsoft uh, is going to do with their Authenticator app or whatever, but it is interesting to see companies like Microsoft, um, who are obviously not new to the space, but they're, they're making significant headway uh, with, with verifiable credentials. Yeah. Um, so uh, IW is coming up next week. It is next uh, week. Are we a week away from it? We're recording this uh, Monday. Tomorrow. April yeah. <laughs> so a week it's, away for it starts on tuesday so you must be excited about it you must be overwhelmed with work right now what uh what is it looking like this year i i attended um 
like I'm, I'm fairly well much newer to the space than, than someone like yourself or a lot of other people that are in there i attended i think the past two iiws so it's quite new to me still um the first time i attended iiw i just couldn't believe like the brilliance that's in there and i loved absolutely loved the format that it's just you're not stuck to just listen to people or to a certain agenda you could just move around and try to progress uh, as you want so i think um the um this unconference or however you label it as format for IAW is phenomenal. Um, but, but what are you the most looking forward to for, for this year's IAW? Yeah. I mean, I think we were really fortunate with, um, you know, the pandemic kicking in last year that we had a pathway to go virtual. Um, my friend Lucas Chaffee had a platform he built specifically to do um, several different formats, but one of the formats he had in mind when he designed Kiko Chat was open space technology, which is what we use to co-create the agenda live the morning of the event. So to sort of know where to go once, you know, we had six weeks from when we officially decided to go virtual to be virtual, we were able to use Lucas's platform to recreate what happens live and in person. So if you haven't been to IAW in person, we sit in a circle, we sit 250 people in a circle together and we articulate the principles of open space and the law of motion and responsibility, which says, you know, if you aren't learning or contributing in your session, it's your responsibility to respectfully get up and go to somewhere that you are um and that 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 works in person and we took that same format that we use in person and translated it online pretty seamlessly the the great yeah. thing about that the after that first virtual version is people came to us and said everything is so crazy with the pandemic but iiw was exactly the same and i needed that and I was like, great. <laughs> I, 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 sec I definitely second that thought. Yeah. So we're we're really lucky that that we got to translate it into the digital version and um continue the vibrancy and dynamics and even expand it because there were people able to come to virtual IW who were unable to make it to our physical version in Mountain View. And we're planning to go back to the physical version um, in the fall, hopefully, and then to alternate between a digital and a in-person to capture some of the good things about being virtual that we've liked, but also to reconnect our community with the, you know, the affordances that an in-person meeting provides that you just can't recreate digitally. And I guess in the spirit of uh, inclusivity, it was great to see just how people from all over are able to actually participate and see that. And I think you, um, uh, you and the other organizers do a really good job of making it inclusive. So people of different statures uh, could, could, could join for sure. Um, what are, I guess, going in now that we're a week or close to being a week out from IIW32, what are the biggest um, industry trends that you're seeing that people are excited to discuss in there? Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to have a 
big discussion about COVID-19 credentials. I mean, they've sort of only grown in importance since we they were a seedling of conversation um, the, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, a year ago, um, BBS Plus was put forward as a new credential signing format specifically Jason LDZKP with BBS Plus. And that has um, really um, grown in terms of people's understanding of how good it could be. And a lot of, a lot of alignment in the industry is happening around it. And I published a paper, which we can put in the show notes um, in January, articulating the choice landscape and the different flavors of verifiable credentials and why this new format helped meet a lot of different criteria that different subgroups in the community had and sort of encouraged more alignment with it so we can get real interoperability. Like writing a standard isn't enough to build an ecosystem of interoperability there's this critical step of like implementing the standard and seeing if your version of what you implemented works in software created by other people also conforming with the standard. And I think that's also going to be a big topic this year in terms of what's next in terms of testing, growing the pie of the systems that work well with each other. And, and in, in the process, building the market for all the entrepreneurs building on the standard, right? Um, to me, every new client of every company in the ecosystem is a good thing for everyone else. Is this BBS plus uh, these methods, uh, these must be exciting to the COVID-19 type, types of projects, right? It seems like they're the ones really spearheading a lot of the interoperability conversations. Well, we'll see. I mean, <laughs> I don't want to get into all the politics that are trying to sort themselves out behind the scenes. I think we're all really doing our best. And I think there is a goodwill effort by everybody trying to solve for COVID use cases to get to interoperability. And there's still some clear distinct differences out there and we're continuing to dialogue, right? Have you seen lots of discussions happening or looking like they're gonna happen around governance? Just that I know that's a very broad uh, topic, but um, um, what, just- what, what, what do you mean by governance? Yeah, well, well, I guess, uh, <laughs> good question back to me. I, I, I guess uh, I come from the perspective um, from an ecosystem solutions implementation across the stack, just being able, and I refer just back to the trust over IP stack on, on this one, just across the, the stack of having registry for of DIDs and credential schemas and stuff like that. Um, the peer-to-peer the -peer communications, the credentialing exchange, the ecosystem rules and governance. Um, have you seen a lot of advancement in that? So over the past years, or is, this, is this something that, that you see conversations around or are hoping to see at the next IAW? I would hope that the people who are so gung-ho at Trust Over IP make space to listen to people who have chosen to opt out and not participate in that ecosystem because there's reasons people are doing that, right? Um, I think I'm really hopeful that the kind of momentum around the Jason LD ZKP with BBS Plus can grow to the extent that we aren't having these like 
that we aren't having a conversation about my flavor credential versus your flavor versus another. Like it's kind of exhausting, it's hurting. It, it has hurt market adoption. Um, I, I think that um, one of the things I've come to understand, and, and this is also like a kind of natural split within the community. One, you know, one split that sort of has continues but won't ever go away is the difference between uh, uh, permission ledgers and public ledgers as, in terms of where to anchor decentralized identifiers. People just have different philosophical sort of anchors of which one to choose. And I think they both have valid points. So we're never not gonna see people anchor dids on public chains and we're never not gonna see another set of people choose to anchor on permission ledgers for their own business process reasons. You know, one of them being like large corporations being completely freaked out that they could be hosting a node that somebody happened to put some PII in some entry in a ledger three years ago and now they're liable under GDPR. So like, forget it, we're controlling the whole chain, which is fine um, in terms of like them meeting their business use cases and needs. Um, so that's one like piece of a governance conversation that is there and won't go away. I think there's another piece of governance, which is surfacing existing systems and business processes that people are needing to name and articulate more clearly. So if you look at something like the Pan-Canadian Trust Framework, it's done an amazing job of kind of surfacing the processes involved in creating identity documentation for both businesses and people in the first place. It's sort of forcing a detailed examination of the business process steps that go into creating that and then getting it all clear and going like, and which ones do you have, right? So it's, it's not so much like creating quote unquote new governance, but sort of surfacing systems and processes that were perhaps taken for granted and making it more explicit what's happening so that apples and apples and oranges and oranges can get compared to each other. So like, how is the identity business process of how British Columbia creates citizen ID cards compare with how the province of Quebec does it? And if they're similar enough, then Quebec can trust BC's credentials and BC can trust Quebec's, right? Like, and I think that that's probably a good thing to to be surfacing and having conversations about what the meaning of different credentials are and how the creation of those assertions is done in ways that other entities can have confidence in them. Yeah, I, I like the reference to the Pan-Canadian Trust Framework, uh, which, which we are familiar with uh, being here in Canada. I think uh, the work that uh, Joni has pushed forward through the DIAC, uh, both on the public and, and uh, private sector um, and really finding a good way to componentize the, the different um, atomic processes or however you want to call it. Because like you said, um, it's, it's not a, a one mold fits all type of thing either, right? It's just if, if you're aligned on the principles and, and um, certain elements underneath there, then um, that's a way that you'll definitely be able to, to trust credentials coming between different ecosystems, uh, whatever they are. So. Um, really good stuff coming out of there and to, to your ledger comment. And I think we've seen a lot of momentum with the non-ledger uh, type of stuff That's as true. well, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you have the, the permission ledgers, you have the public ledgers. Uh, 
it's been interesting to see advancements on both those sides. And um, it seems like uh, the key event receipt infrastructure uh, project, however you call it, is, is gaining a lot of momentum too. And people seem quite interested in that. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we talked a bit uh, about the private sector. Um, what are you seeing, I guess, from a self-sovereign identity or decentralized identity perspective? Um, is there a lot of public sector or government involvement in IAW, just for, for folks to, to know if, if they're looking to have these types of conversations? Yeah, but there could be more. I mean, there's sort of the usual suspects, right? There's the British Columbia guys, Tim Buma. <laughs> um, and like, who else shows up that's from government? Um, There's some interesting work in the states uh, that you that you know very well uh, with the with the DHS too. I'm sure a lot of the stuff. Oh that yeah, and there. Neil yeah. and his crew. Yeah, I mean, but those are folks. Who, I mean, all of those folks have been in the community for years now, right? So I, I like. And, and I know companies all around the world who are have been talking to their own governments, whether those government folks actually show up at IW, I don't know. I think my understanding is that um, there are governments, a government fora um, focused on digitization and digital transformation, where I think there are conversations happening that we just don't hear about in the private sector because they feel more comfortable talking to themselves. Um, and hopefully over time, more of this conversation will come out into more accessible fora. Um, I, I'm sure like we mentioned before too, there, there uh, seems to be, well, and the, there is clearly a lot of conversation around the, the health credentials. Um, do you mind kind of giving an overview from your point of view, what has happened with the Good Health Pass initiative? Uh, it, it, from my point of view, uh, or just from, from my perception, having not been involved, as we're not, we're not too involved in, in health credentials, um, it's a project that started under ID2020 and developed a relationship with Trust Over IP to execute some stuff. Do you mind just um, lighting, putting so a bit of clarity behind that? So I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, that's as best as your description is as good as mine in terms of those details. I. Um, I think that um, one of the inspirations for it was to catalyze a global conversations around critical stakeholders in international travel, specifically around test results and sharing those. Because the World Health Organization only has a mandate to address vaccine credentials under international regulations and basically said straight out, we aren't dealing with testing. Okay, great. So given that countries are mandating testing to get in, somebody has to deal with it. And we need and those entities who make international travel go needed to collaborate together to figure out how there was sort of one or a much narrower set, maybe not one, but a common way to figure out how to get a test from a trusted lab and share it into um, a traveler decision system and to support governments on the other end being able to see those results, right? And that's a lot of entities 
that were really clear they didn't want to see a global system with 40 different apps, with 40 different testing lab networks that might require a person with three flights in a day to go get three different tests from three different labs with three different apps. That isn't going to help global travel reopen. It's going to keep it closed. So there's a lot of moving pieces in trying to solve the, you know, the, the legitimate business need to figure out if countries are requiring test results to get in and airplanes are sort of required to get that proof before they let someone on a plane to go to country X, how is that going to happen in a way that's as privacy preserving as possible, empowering to the individuals as possible and reduced headache in terms of processing and managing that information in those existing systems. Which is the same thing, I guess, for, um, there, there's some governments that are mandating it. There's some announcements, um, at least that the US federal government announced that they weren't gonna mandate a, uh, a, a digital wallet or digital credentials and some states are not doing it. But I guess, regardless of that, whoever the relying parties are in these, uh, in these uh, transactions- They're, they're verifiers, they're not relying parties. What? How do you I'm do teasing you. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's really uh, important that we call them verifiers and not, I mean, yes, they're relying parties, but part of like this language is really important. Like a relying party is phoning home to an identity provider and these systems don't do that. Hmm. Right. And I, I thought they were interchangeable and just uh, com coming from the space where we're banks talking about this stuff and just figuring that the, uh, the issuer holder verifier model was just us saying verifier is relying party, but okay, I, I see the difference that you're pointing out. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, you obviously uh, build communities, you build communities through CCI, you build communities in the identity space for, for many years now. Um, having done all of this, um, and like we, we talked about inclusivity uh, a little bit before too, and when we talk about adoption, it's just thinking more and more about the role that culture plays into uh, to, to, to this stuff. Um, and a, a silly example would just be just an American culture versus a Chinese culture, how, how different they are, right? Um, what role does culture play in the adoption of this on, on a global scale? Different, I mean, different cultures make different assumptions and agreements about how they operate. Um, I think one of the appealing things about the underlying architectural affordances of decentralized identity and verifiable credentials is it matches how it, it aligns with core values and current architectural realities of how identity systems work within Western liberal democracies. And so when I talk to government leaders who are active in the space, they're like, look, you know, I was, I'm, I'm Canadian. I was born in British Columbia. The province of British Columbia is the authoritative source of my birth date because they were the administrative region where I was born. My parents filed the paper with them, work with them, and they have that on file, right? That government wants to help me get that information in a form I can reuse and share with other people. But they don't want to be in the middle of every transaction I do forever where I share my birthday. They're like, it's none of my business. 
I don't want to know. So don't build a system where you put me in the loop, which is different than an architectural choice that was made in India with the development of their Adhar system, where with the fundamental underlying architectural design as originally conceived, every time you presented your Adhar number and by extension, the core demographic information within it, your name and your birthday, the government would see it because it is in a phone home authentication system. Meaning you ping the government to do the authentication to see if the person standing in front of you is the person they claim to be, you know, having this particular number. And, you know, we have identifier systems in the West for social, social service provision. They're called social security numbers in the US, social insurance numbers in Canada. They have all sorts of different names, I'm sure in Europe, they're kind of the same. They're this number that you use to interact with the government, to pay your taxes, to receive pension benefits, to receive disability pension thing, benefits and potentially other things. But they're a long live indexical number connected to your real name so that they can figure out it's you again. But there's right now, at least, you know, in, in Canada and the United States, there's no way to do authentication against that number because it's not a network endpoint and they don't want it to be. So part of the reason for innovating these decentralized identity systems and why Western liberal democracies are interested in them is because they support people being able to prove those things about themselves without the government being in the loop all the time. And they, they don't want to be in the loop. Uh, well, Kalia, I guess uh, just as a last question here, or uh, just a last thought, uh, what would you tell people who are still on the fence of attending IAW that haven't attended it before? Well, I enthusiastically invite, invite you. Um, IAW does cost money to attend. And if that is a barrier to you being able to participate, please reach out to us. We are really committed to accessibility. Um, we also have rates that are for students, folks who are with um, startups in the developing world, et cetera. But we are, um, you know, we, we charge money because it costs us money to put on the event. Um, even the virtual event, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes in terms of the labor involved in creating the space and collecting all the notes and doing all of the, the space creation and holding. Um, but it's really, um, it's, a, it's a little bit of the deep end, right, in the sense of, you know, um, you're in the rooms with the people who invented this technology in the first place, but that's like, that's a really great thing too. So um, I'd encourage folks who want to explore the space to come. You know, there's other options too, right? You can subscribe to my newsletter. I, every week I publish um, the Identosphere with InfoMiner. We sort through all of the blogosphere and Twittersphere news and highlight the best of what happened that, this week in the industry. There's a ton of you know webinars and podcasts and, and online resources. And, and it's a really friendly community too, meaning if you have questions and you're confused, you can host a session about your confusion and people will come and help you, right? So it's not, um, it's not, a, it's not it, the un, 
in unconference means several things. One, the agenda isn't created until the day of the event, but also other formats besides presentation are invited and encouraged, including people who are lost and confused asking questions. Well, um, we'll, we'll include the, the registration kind of links in, in the show notes with uh, Kikilia's uh, kind of contact information through social as well. And um, I will say your Identosphere uh, newsletter is just an amazing resource every week. So if people aren't on that, I, um, I try to keep up with speed with stuff that's happening. I don't know what you do to keep up with all these <laughs> different things that are happening, but just for kind of a one-stop shop uh, to get overwhelmed every week with everything that's happening, uh, it's the best thing to be subscribed to. So I'll link that in the show notes as well. Uh, Kalia, thank you so much for doing this with me today. I very much look forward to IAW. Thank you so much for having me. And um, yeah, please reach out to me if you want to get connected to the community. I'm really help, happy to find help you find your niche amongst all of us. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. To stay up to speed with future episode releases, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever channel you're listening to it right now. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to me directly. You can find me online. I'm quite active on LinkedIn and Twitter, so I look forward to hearing from you. See you all next time.